Today's scripture comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, The woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, welcome to Exilic. My name is Aaron, and I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Last week, I began our service with a trivia question, and this week, I want to begin with another one. Take a guess what one of the top, if not the top, public health issue is today. Take a guess. You might think it's COVID because COVID has rightfully gotten all the attention over the past two years, but there is another pandemic that is even far more pervasive than even COVID and it is our loneliness pandemic. And the reason why I say it's a public health issue is because according to Dr. Vivek Murthy, former Surgeon General in the Harvard Business Review, he says this, loneliness is also associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, and anxiety. During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. According to the Public Library of Science Medicine Journal, loneliness damages our bodies. It is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, equivalent to being an alcoholic. It is more harmful than not exercising, and it is twice as harmful as obesity. So I don't think it would be hyperbolic to say that your friendships over the next 20, 30 years of your life will have an impact on your health as much as your friendships. And there's all sorts of reasons why we feel loneliness. I mean, we, every one of us here feels pangs of loneliness, uh, but there are also many of us that feel chronic loneliness as well. And there's all sorts of reasons why we feel it. For starters, we live in a hyper-mobile society. Uh, COVID has only exasperated that. So you might have friends that have now moved across the country, if not across the world. And so all of our friends are scattered all over the place, which makes it very hard to have friendship without proximity. Uh, Technology, you've all heard this, you know, we're far more connected than ever before, but that also 
technology also disconnects us more than ever before. I would say that our, our society as a whole is uh, very fractured and polarized as well. We all di believe in different ideologies. So you might even have friends where they voted for that person or they have this take on this issue and you're like, not sure if we can be friends anymore. So there's sort of a falling out that has taken place in our society as well. And I would say in addition to all of that, we still live in the most overworked city in the country. And so we are too busy to, to make friends. So all sorts of reasons why we experience the kind of loneliness that we do. The Bible, it's really interesting. It has a, it has a unique take on why we experience loneliness. And what the Bible would say is that when God made Adam and, Adam and Eve, he put that ache of loneliness into our hearts. Now you might say, why would he put that ache into our hearts if it causes like all these problems for us? Well, in the Bible, he puts that ache into our hearts so that we would actually move towards friendship. We would move towards relationships and community. Had he not put that ache of loneliness into our hearts, we would live even more individualistically than we already do. So it's almost like this gift that he gives to us. In, in Genesis 2.18, it says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And so the reason why God makes Eve is because he wants humanity to be in the context of friendship, community, uh, and relationship with one another. And the reason why he makes Adam and Eve social creatures or social beings is because he himself is a social being. So we believe in one God, but we also believe in three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within the Godhead, they have friendship, perfect community, and fellowship. And it is out of the overflow of their love, their friendship, that God has made us as well. Same thing with parents, why do you have kids? Out of the overflow of your love, they make kids. It's the same, uh, same idea and same concept. And so uh, I know that I'm stating the obvious here when I say this, but the remedy and the cure for the loneliness that we all feel in this room, all of us do, you know what the cure is? It's friendship. This is why the Bible over and over again uses the phrase, one another, meet up with one another, love one another, encourage one another, hang out with one another. And I would go as far as to even say that the apex or the pinnacle of human experience is friendship. This is why food, great food, always tastes better when you're with great people. So friendship in many ways is really like the apex of the experience that we get in, in this life. But far more often, or more often than not, we are also routinely disappointed by the friendships that we have. Every one of us in this room probably at one point or another in our life had a falling out with someone else. We've broken up with someone else. There are relationships that are broken and fractured. All of us have experienced that, or very generally speaking, we're just discontent with the friends that we have because it's, it's just so superficial. There's no like depth or heart you know, in, in the relationships that we've had, we have. So we all sort of feel this like lack of meaning and dissatisfaction with the friends that we have. And so here's a question. How can we have more meaningful friendships? And maybe another way of looking at it on the flip side is, how can I be a more meaningful friend to other people? So take a look with me at verses one to two. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. 
and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Question, have you ever experienced a life-changing event that changed the entire trajectory of your life? Could be that dream job, meeting that, uh, your future spouse. It could be moving to New York City. Have you ever experienced something that changed the entire trajectory of your life? David did. Last week, we talked about the iconic story of David and Goliath. And after David slayed the giant, the entire course of his life would change. Because one of the rewards for slaying the giant was moving into the royal palace. And so David quite literally went from being Aladdin, the, the quote-unquote street rat, to Aladdin, the next sultan. And when David moved into the royal palace from a no-name shepherd boy to the royal palace, one of the first people he befriended was Saul's son, Jonathan. And as we take a look at this passage, one of the things that it says is that uh, they became one in spirit. And it's this idea that their hearts became attached or knit together. And you can understand if you read 1 Samuel in depth why they became kindred spirits so quickly because Jonathan was no slouch himself. He was also a, a fighter and a warrior. If you read chapter 14, he slayed a ton of uh, Philistines himself. And so the two of them were sort of like yoked together uh, as one. And one of the things that I really appreciate about this chapter in particular is how the Bible highlights this friendship between David and Jonathan. And the reason why I love this is because in our culture, in our society, we tend to place a lot of emphasis on romantic intimacy, finding the trophy wife or finding the trophy husband. And so this idea of friendship has sort of taken a backseat to our romantic uh, relationships with one another. And so if you, take a, if, if you think about like the, even the way that we use friends today, um, uh, Sam Albury points out that uh, we turn friendship from a noun into a verb where you just friend someone on social. But when you take a look at the Bible, the Bible has a far more robust understanding of friendship than our culture does today. Because in the Bible, to be a friend to someone or to be friends with someone is when, when you know intimate and personal things about them that other people don't know. So one of the interesting things about the Hebrew word for friend is that it is very closely related to the Hebrew word for secret. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? It's because a friend is someone that you can tell secrets to, intimate things to, personal things to, that you can't tell to other people. So here's a question. Do you have people in your life right now that you can tell secrets to? Based upon the size of this room, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that there are some of you that do have these kinds of friends that you can tell intimate secrets to. But I'm also going to guess that there are some of us that don't have these kinds of friends that we can actually tell secrets to. But here's what I also know about you. What I also know about you is that you yearn and you long for these kinds of friendships. The kinds of friends that you can actually tell secrets to. And so the question for us is gonna be this, how do we do this? And I think rather than taking a passive approach to forming these kinds of relationships, what we can all do is take a more active approach to having more meaningful friendships in our lives. And there's two things that we see in this text. Number one, if you want meaningful relationships in your life, friendships in your life, number one, love others as yourself. Now, if you're a Christian, what I just said went right over your head because you've heard this 
ad nauseum, loving others as yourself. But just break that down for a little bit. Do you know how difficult, how hard it is loving other people as yourself? Very, 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 very difficult. But here's the second thing that you have to do. You can't just view friendships in a calculated way, which we oftentimes tend to do. You have to start viewing friendship in a more covenantal way. And I'll, I'll flesh what that, what that means. But let's take a look at the first thing, loving others as ourselves. Jonathan, this text says, loved David as himself. Now this is significant because there is no one that we love more than ourselves. In every premarital counseling class, the one thing that I tell every couple is this, there is only one person you love more than your future spouse. It is yourself. That is the one thing hindering you from having a flourishing marriage. So the idea of loving someone as much as we love ourselves, very, very difficult to do. And if we had the time though, the Bible is replete with passages like this. So we'll just take a look at one very famous passage, Philippians 2. And it says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Also very difficult to do. It's very difficult. And then it says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. How do you know you're loving someone else as much as you love yourself? You're looking not only to your own interests, but you're looking to their interests. Jonathan loved David as himself. He not only took an interest in himself, he took a bigger interest in David. And we know this because in verses three to four, it says this, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Just pause there for a moment. Who is Jonathan? Jonathan was the prince of Israel. His father was King Saul. And therefore, what that meant was that Jonathan was the next heir to the throne. Just think about all that power, money. Think about all that prestige for a moment. It's all of that, just waiting for him. It's also 10 years, David Sr. So he's the older brother, as it were. What, what I find so interesting is he's the next heir in line, 10 years older than David, but in the symbolic act, takes off his robe or his tunic, gives him his sword, uh, gives him his bow, gives him his belt. And this was a symbolic act of Jonathan passing off the torch to David. It's like, why would he do that? It's because he loved him as himself. He wasn't only interested in himself, but he was also interested in David. He was David's biggest cheerleader. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example of this. So when I was in college, uh, I was a communication major. My favorite classes was nonverbal communication. My prof freelance for the FBI. So the FBI would often bring him on board to uh, evaluate suspects as sort of like this human lie detecting test. And he would say, yeah, based upon you know, how their, their micro expressions there, they're lying, or based upon their micro expressions, they're telling the truth. He would also teach us like, whether someone was really happy or not. So we would watch, like, uh, we would watch cartoons and analyze wrinkles uh, on cartoons. You know what we also watched in class? Beauty pageants. And so he would teach us, so you know what they do in beauty pageants? They always announce a runner-up before the winner. And the runner-up, you know, can't be sad. It's like, you, you can't do that. That's not, not the culture of beauty pageants. They have to be happy. And so they're smiling, 
but you could tell they're not really happy for the winter. And so he would teach us about like the, our, our uh, orbiculus oculi muscles. It's like where we get the, our, our crow's feet. If you see that, then it's like you're genuinely happy. If you don't see it, then it just means that they're faking it. And so we would watch like beauty pageants in slow motion to see the response of the runner up and be like, oh my gosh, she's not really happy. She's just like pretending and she's just smiling and, you know, and they're not, she's not really interested in the other person's win. She's more interested in themselves. She's not really rooting for the other person. She's really rooting for herself and very hard to do. But the Bible says that we ought to love other people as much as we love ourselves. How good are you at doing that? I was talking to one person after service. I was talking to a bunch of people after first service, and they're like, I suck at that. Like, I, 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 I'm not Jonathan. I, I don't do that. How good are you at being more outward-focused than inward-focused? Taking a look at other people's interests and not just your own. But that's not enough to form a meaningful friendship. We also need to view our friendships in a non-calculated way, but a more covenantal way. And here in verse three and four, it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is simply a formal promise. Uh, usually we hear the word covenant in the context of marriage, but it can also take place in the context of friendships. And what I find so interesting about these verses is that it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. It doesn't say that David made a covenant equally with Jonathan. In other words, this covenant was unilateral, not bilateral. It was one-way love, not two-way love. So Jonathan isn't saying, hey, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But he'll, he's, what he's saying here is, I'll scratch your back even if you don't scratch mine. Unilateral covenant, far different than a calculated, commodified approach to friendships, which is often what we have. Tim Keller, in The Meaning of Marriage, says this, Sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. This has also been called commodification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. So here's a question again. How do you tend to approach your relationships? Is it very calculated and commodified or is it more covenantally, uh, or do you have a more covenantal approach? When we love other people as much as we love ourselves, and when we are okay with unilateral covenants with others, you know what's gonna happen? You will have more friends than you know what to do with, or as the book of Proverbs would say, you will have a friend that sticks closer than a brother or sister. This was Jonathan's relationship with David, and that, that's what made it so special. However, this was not Saul's relationship with David. What we see here is the exact opposite in verses 6 to 8. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that is Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. 
This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? So after David slayed uh, Goliath, he sort of went viral, uh, and his fame spread, uh, uh, spread everywhere. And rather than being thankful to David, Saul quickly became envious and angry towards David. Uh, when, when the women were singing that Saul is slain his thousands, but uh, David is tens of thousands, <clears throat> he felt very inferior to, to David, and he felt like David was a threat to the kingdom, which is ironic because David actually saved the kingdom for him. And so the contrast between Saul and Jonathan couldn't have been more glaring. Like Jonathan's super happy for his friend David. Saul is green with envy towards David. And this is what envy is, according to Sam Storms. Envy, envy is a resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another. An advantage that you are convinced ought rightfully to be yours. But why should someone else's success or promotion or praise provoke envy in our hearts? Why not joy instead? The answer is because we don't want others to appear better than ourselves. We are convinced that we are more worthy and more deserving of that advantage. And so here, I think the, the work of uh, St. Augustine is very helpful when uh, Augustine referred to sin as disordered loves. So let me flesh that out. So what is greed? It is the disordered love of money. What is gluttony? The disordered love of food and drink. What is lust? Disordered love of sex. What is pride? Disordered love of self. It's overinflated, right? Narcissistic. But what is envy? Envy is the disordered love of others. You don't love them as yourself. You're envious of them, you're jealous of them, right? Every one of us in this room has experienced envy at one point or another, if not constantly. And one of the breeding grounds for envy, of course, is social media. Well, we are constantly juxtaposing our ordinary life to everyone else's highlight reel. How can you not be envious? And here's a good litmus test for, for how you know you suffer from envy. You know you suffer from envy when there is a part of you, a small part of you that dies when someone else is happy. It's like, that, that dude, how did he get married? <laughs> like, why does it look like they're having the time of their life and I am not, like, I'm stuck in the office. Like, how are they traveling all the time? There's a small part of you that dies when someone else is happy and there's a small part of you that's happy when another person dies, gets dumped, loses, fails. Small part of you that's like, yes. You know what the Germans call that? Schadenfreude. You know what schadenfreude is? Pleasure at another person's displeasure. So I, I, uh, I have a betting problem. Every time like our CG comes over, we want to bet for everything. So I'm the kind of person that when we bet for things, I want like positive things. Like let's go, loser pays for dinner, dessert. But there are certain groups of people that don't want positive things. They want like negative things to happen to people, right? <laughs> they want to see people suffer, like do a plank for a minute and eat durian. And it's like, <laughs> yes, that's schadenfreude. This pleasure, Pastor Gene's not here, so I'll say this, but in college one time, this guy, this guy made everyone play a game. Loser, there's four red cups, water, all filled with water, one toilet water. Oh. <laughs> everyone has to pick one random cup to drink. You know what that is? Schadenfreude. All right, one time he did actually four cups of toilet water, so no one knew. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is 
pleasure at another person's displeasure. When you suffer from envy, when you suffer from schadenfreude, it is almost impossible to love other people as much as you love yourself. How could it be? For those of you who um, are suffering from anger right now, I was talking with someone in the first service and, and he was just like, I'm so angry, like at everyone, like the world, and I hate myself. For those of you who experience anger, if you take a deeper look below anger, you know what usually is at the root of that anger? Envy. People passing you by in life stages, you feel like you're being left behind. You're just so angry at everyone. So this is a problem that we all suffer with, but when you suffer from envy, it is impossible to form meaningful friendships. It is impossible. How, how could you love someone as much as you love yourself when you suffer from uh, envy? So do these two things. Love others as yourself. View relationships in a unilateral, covenantal way. And you will have friends that stick closer than a brother or sister. But that is not enough. There is one final thing that you need to experience as well. And that is friendship yourself. When you experience this kind of friend, it's a lot easier to, exp- uh, to give this kind of friendship to other people. And this is what we find ultimately in the gospel. In John 15, Jesus says, my command is this. If we can pull that up. John, there it is. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. What's really interesting about this is that if Aristotle was reading these verses, he would say, that's not possible. Like, God and man can't become friends because friends have stuff in common. Like, you both like the same things, but God and man are so ontologically different. How in the world could it be possible that there's some similarities? And if Jesus and Aristotle were able to have a coffee together, you know what Jesus would say? Ah, great question. But that's the whole point of the incarnation. That's why I became human, so that we could have something in common. What's interesting is that Jesus himself experiences loneliness. Think about his life for a moment. Last three years of his life, 12 friends he spent every day with for three years. Every day, same 12 people. This was his inner circle. This was his Ocean's 12. One of them, one of them, one of them denies him three times. I don't even know, like, I don't know the guy. The rest of them abandoned him when he needed them most. When I needed you most, you weren't there. Last one, betrays him with a kiss. Judas Iscariot. You know what's really interesting? When you take a look at the gospel accounts, as Judas is betraying him, you know what Jesus says to Judas? Friend, do what you came to do. (laughs) Even then, his friend that turns into an enemy, he still refers to him as a friend. I think one of the reasons why Jesus was not disappointed with his friends is because he understood the limitations of his friends, something that we far too often forget. One of the reasons why we are so disappointed is because we expect our friends to be more than they are capable of doing for us. There is one thing that your friends cannot be for you that you yearn and long for, however, 
the one thing that your friends cannot be for you is God. Your friends cannot read your mind. They don't know all the secret stuff that you're thinking of, but God does. When you move to Dubai or any other city around the world or country, your friends are not going to go with you. But there is a friend that sticks closer to than a brother, and that is God. He's with you wherever you go. Proximity, never an issue. He's with you step after step after step. In. And when you take a look at the life of Jesus, what's interesting is that he does have a unilateral type of covenant love with his friends. Even if you don't scratch mine, I will scratch yours. He doesn't say with friends like these who needs enemies. He doesn't say to hell with them. But he experiences hell for them. Out of his love for them, he loves them as much as he loves himself. His view wasn't calculated. It wasn't commodified. It was covenantal. It is always one-way love when it comes to Jesus and his disciples and with us. So let me ask you a question. Right now, how good is your friendship with God? I know that it sounds like an odd question, but how good is your friendship with God? Enoch and Noah walked with God, which was a metaphor for friendship. Abraham is explicitly referred to as a friend of God. Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks with a friend. How good is your friendship with God? I think I can say on behalf of all the volunteers and all the staff who put in hours of work just to make this Sunday service possible, I think I can speak on behalf of all our volunteers and staff when I say this. All of the hours of work today would have been worth it if at least one person in this room today, just one, can actually have a catch-up session with God tonight and say, God, it's been too long. I have ghosted on you too long. I want to come back. We need to mend this broken relationship. We need to fix this friendship because there is only one friend that can give me everything that I need, everything that I long for. And it's not so-and-so, it's not so it's, it's only you. It's only you. But our solution to our loneliness can't just be uh, our friendship and rectifying our friendship with God, uh, but it has to be uh, having friendship with one another as well, which is why he made us in the context of friendship. And so here's my working definition of friendship that we can close, close with. How do you know you have a friend? How do you know you have a friendship with someone? You have a friendship with someone when you can when you can go to their apartment unannounced. That's how you know your friends. You know you're even better friends when you can just open that door. You don't have to text them. It's like, come in, have some coffee. That's, that's what friends are. Now let's work, work our way backwards. How do we get to that point? But where do we even meet them? Especially in a city with millions of people. Great place to start. Right here. And it always starts formally, right? Sunday worship service, CG. But formal things always move to informal things. Like it could be your CG saying, hey, you guys want to do like a self-defense class for like fellowship and also just because of all the AAPI hate that's taking place? It could be, hey, I'm, I'm walking that way. Do you want to walk this way with me? Or, hey, can I call you an Uber because it's like super late and I don't want you to take the subway. It's like it could be not safe. Can I call you an Uber? It's all those formal things that can lead eventually to informal things. And that's when the whole one in spirit thing, knit together thing, 
kindred spirit thing slowly but surely begins to happen, but it can only happen when you stop asking the question, I want these friends in my life, and you start asking the question, how can I be that friend to other people? Not what can I get out of it, but what can I give to other people? You have to start thinking about how I can love other people as much as I love myself and think about friendships in a non-calculated, commodified way. And the more you do that, the more quality, meaningful friendships uh, that you will have. And life is always greater in the context of good friendships. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a, the concept of friendship is a double-edged sword because on the one hand, we want better friends. On the other hand, we know that we're not that great either. You know, they're, they're, we're selfish, we're, we're, we're inward-focused, and, and I think what that ultimately means is, um, first of all, we need deeper friendship with you to, to fill, fulfill the, the holes in our hearts and the longings that we have, the yearnings that we have, but we also need to start doing this for other people in a non-calculated way, very difficult to do. Um, but help us to experience that from you first and foremost so that it can overflow into other people. Help us to be more like Jonathan, not like Saul. Help us to be more like Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.